2: I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 5th, 2022. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden announced that U.S. Special Forces successfully completed a counterterrorism operation that killed Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al qurayshi the leader of the Islamic State. The operation was the largest U.S. raid in Syria since the 2019 mission that killed Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from October 2019, in which Scott R. Anderson, Dan Byman, and Benjamin Wittes discussed the raid that killed al-Baghdadi, what it meant for the future of the Islamic State, former President Trump's speech announcing the operation, and what it all meant at the time for the broader region.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, special edition, October 28th, 2019. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has been killed in a raid by U.S. forces in Syria. The president says he died like a dog whimpering and crying uh, and gave a remarkable uh, statement victory lap football spiking uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, We put together a quick group to discuss the implications for ISIS and U.S. policy in Syria, the oddity of the president's chosen mode of announcement of the event, and what it all means for the ongoing debacle with the Kurds and the Turks in northern Syria. With me in the jungle studio is Scott Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor, and with me by remote magic of Skype and whatever is Dan Byman, uh, our Foreign Affairs Editor. So Dan, let me start with you. Uh, Everybody's talking about this now, but in your judgment, how big a deal is it that Baghdadi is uh, uh, no longer among the living?
1: It's definitely a big deal. Uh, Baghdadi was the leader of the Islamic State. There's no clear successor. And he was someone who was uh, skilled. He was inspiring to many people. And his death not only deprives the Islamic State of a key leader, but it's also unclear exactly how they'll replace him. Will Whoever comes in be able to consolidate control if that person is also hiding from U.S. Special Operations Forces and from drones and airstrikes. Will that person be able to communicate if they are afraid of getting on the phone? Um, And since the Islamic State has suffered hit after hit in recent years, uh, Baghdadi's death seems like a punctuation mark.
0: All right. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of Baghdadi's death, there was a second raid in which another person was killed. Um, what do we know about uh, Al Mujahid and and what is the significance of of his death?
1: He was a senior leader. It's a little unclear how senior an operational leader he was. He had a, a significant public role. So then, when someone's visible, we tend to associate um, a lot of importance to them, even though at times they're kind of the the Sean Spicer equivalent of the jihadist world. Um, But uh, he was certainly a a significant figure, and his death shows that the campaign is going to continue. It's going to be relentless, and that it's not simply a one-off strike against Baghdadi, but rather there were numerous people who were killed before Baghdadi, and this is going to continue.
0: So this is not the first time that the operational leader of ISIS or as its predecessor group was named, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, has been killed. Uh, in fact, it's not even the second time or the third time. Um, and so I have a little bit of a why is this time different from all other times? I mean, you know, we we killed uh, one after another uh, of these uh, uh individuals who kind of rose to prominence in these organizations and each time the expectation was that this was kind of the uh the you know the beginning of the end or the you know the death throes, as dick cheney once put it um and each time the organization has a kind of resilience that is uh, impressive so you know why is why should i assume that this time is going to be any different
1: Well, let's first of all start with the previous times where, of course, these organizations endured, but they've become much less effective. Uh, When's the last major al-Qaeda strike on the West? If you look at the al-Qaeda core, um, the al-Qaeda core and the Islamic State both wanted to hit the U.S. homeland and they were able to inspire people, but they were not able to direct operations on the U.S. homeland. So these attacks on mid-level figures, on logisticians, on operational leaders They've had a real impact and they haven't ended the conflict, but they've made the group less effective. But I'll put Baghdadi in a different category. And part of that is when you look at why people join the Islamic State. Um, There are a lot of reasons, some of which are ideological, some of which are personal. But a big factor is that in 2014 and 2015, this was a group that could present itself as a winner. It was taking on the world. It was proclaiming a caliphate. And it seemed on the march, if you looked around the Muslim world, it was inspiring provinces. If you looked in Iraq and Syria, it was conquering territory. And that momentum has been reversed. And having its leader be killed and not having you know, an obvious successor of the same stature means it's going to be less inspiring. Again, to be clear, this doesn't end the group. It has lots of people under arms. It has a large clandestine network. It's inspired lots of people. It's easy to go overboard on this. But at the same time, it's also, I think, a bit too easy to say that everything's going to continue as before.
0: So you don't look at this as another, uh, you know, you kill Zarqawi and uh, I don't know, as Obi-Wan would say, you can strike me down, but I'll come back more powerful than you can possibly imagine, right? I I mean, there's no, you don't think there's a, 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 a Baghdadi waiting in the wings to take over Uh, and kind of reimagine the organization in some even more grandiose fashion the way Baghdadi himself did with Zarqawi's death or with some intervening deaths along
1: the way? I will never say never. I don't want to claim I know the um, leadership capabilities of whoever's going to take his place. But the bigger issue to me was that when Baghdadi was able to take over, he did so at a time of opportunity. That you had the Iraqi government that was um, increasing discrimination, that was turning against the Sunni tribes and others who had helped fight the Islamic State of Iraq, um, uh, the group's predecessor. And at the same time, you had the Syrian civil war breakout, and Baghdadi was very skilled in exploiting these opportunities. Um, So part of the um, question here will be, can we deny the Islamic State opportunity? And some of that will be continuing the campaign, and some of it will require actions by the government of Iraq or local actors in Iraq and Syria.
0: Scott, how much of that uh, uh, set of uh, comments by Dan do
2: you agree with or disagree with? I I agree with almost all of it. um, But I do think what we are likely to see, or a good chance we're going to see, is this providing a bit of an impetus for a transition that was already going to have to happen, already has begun to happen. Uh, we have to remember al-Baghdadi really claimed to pr- came to prominence and became this major figure uh, after, in 2014, after we saw ISIS march through northern Iraq uh, at the great mosque in Mosul, he steps up, and he announces this caliphate, and he pronounces himself the head of it, right? Um, and it, it set up this idea and this rhetoric that was based around a territorial holding that has since evaporated. Now we see leadership getting handed over, according to some reports in the last few hours, although I don't know if these have been confirmed yet, um, somebody named Abdullah Kardash, who uh, was a lieutenant, major lieutenant of al-Baghdadi. He's somebody who's an Iraq war veteran, was an insurgent who kind of joined up with Baghdadi, um, uh, particularly after Baghdadi took Mosul, and is known as kind of an internal enforcer within ISIS, uh, so somebody who may be more on the operational side uh, with uh, certainly enough military background um, to to play perhaps play that angle up a little bit more. You know, he's in this position now where this legacy of Al Baghdadi in a way, may have been tying the group down to a certain extent. Now they're a little freer to adapt to different modes of operation, different ideas of legitimacy, um, different sort of organizations. The group's also a little more free to fracture, um, you know, and to different elements of it. And this is what we saw happen with AQI after the death of Zarqawi. Different elements kind of spun off and either operationalized on their own or formed alliances with other sort of existing groups. And so I think we're going to see this expediting this evolution of ISIS that was going to have to happen with the death of the territorial Caliphate, as people call it, uh, and this is going to be something that kind of moves that forward because now they're not going to be bound to Al Baghdadi's um, kind of leadership and the rhetorical elements that kind of tied it together.
0: So, I, this sounds like a really weird thing to say, but I actually kind of mean it in a in a very serious way. That I think of ISIS as kind of like a Silicon Valley tech company that you know they're sort of always looking for the next big thing, and they're and they're based on in in a profound way, they're kind of based on innovation, right? So, Zarqawi's big innovation is highly theatrical, extreme brutality, right? And they play that card for a you know good long time. So when Zarqawi is killed, uh, Baghdadi again with some intervening, uh, short lived leadership. His big innovation is the idea of controlling territory and ultimately declaring the caliphate. That gets now taken away. So if we, you know, call it Google instead of ISIS, right, now new leadership, What what is the next big thing for ISIS, right? They, like it's going to be hard for them to take back a lot of territory, Uh, The caliphate idea I mean I don't know to what extent that still has salience for people but they do seem to assimilate prior big ideas in their new big ideas so like what's what's the turn that kind of makes sense for them at this point or are they just
1: kind of fading out. That's a, a tough one. I'd love to uh, make sure I can give you a, a good answer.
0: Before you do, though, do, do you think the premise of the question is 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 right or wrong? I mean, I, I I've 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 framed it provocatively on purpose, but it, I mean, is there merit to the underlying theory?
1: Uh, I would say that yes, they have uh, sought sought a splash, but. They've done things other groups have done before. So we've seen other groups that have carved out territory. We've certainly seen other groups use horrific brutality. Um, What I think has made them special is they've done these things, but actually been very effective in their propaganda, that their use of social media, um, I would single out in particular, um, made all this stuff much more real. So when other groups have declared, you know, the Islamic State of Iraq declared an Islamic State in Iraq um, a decade ago. And it didn't really have that much cachet. didn't really inspire in the same way that uh, the caliphate leader does. And so to me, a lot of that is greater publicity and their ability to back up their words. And a lot of that, again, comes from having some degree of success. And so a big question to me is simply, can the counterterrorism pressure be sustained? And some of that is at the kind of military level, and some of it's going to be trying to keep on top of the new technologies and make sure they can't be exploited. Uh, One thing that I do worry about quite a bit um, is what we've seen on the white supremacist side is this idea of live streaming violence. And that's something that I think, unfortunately, is going to cross extremist groups where we'll see different groups that are using these technologies uh, simply because young people are are using these technologies. It's not the sort of thing that requires brilliance on uh, the part of a terrorist group. Um, it's simply a lot of their 18-year-old members will be doing this in their daily lives and are likely to apply it to violence. So that's one area I'm quite concerned about.
2: Yeah, I mean I I think I think uh Dan makes good points there and I and I would add to it just two other considerations that uh, the new ISIS, whatever it's going to be, are kind of facing that may help shape it. Um, you know, the the one area where it's arisen is is uh, spaces where you have a combination of limited government control of any sort, really. Uh, And then the uh, presence of, frankly, broad Sunni discontent um, in Iraq and in Syria, places where people were had a governance vacuum. And then in Iraq, particularly in 2014, widespread discontent with the Maliki government that led to a degree of popular acceptance in some parts of uh, the country to this wave of ISIS, seeing them kind of as liberators, although I think a lot of people became quickly disenchanted with that. Um, those elements are still there. They're not things that go away strictly by um, you know military measures or intelligence measures. There's a degree to which you need some sort of governance or some sort of structure in place, at least to kind of maintain control of territory and make sure you don't have big pockets where groups can form and train and organize. That's very difficult to do, um, but that's kind of the idea of this last phase of the counter-ISIS mission. And then on top of that, you know, you you do still have the simmering discontent, potentially, particularly in northern Iraq, where there is still strong um, concerns with how people feel they're being treated by the Shia-dominated central government. We haven't seen the Sunnis be as active in opposing that as they have been in the past. They seem to be fairly quiet, I think, in part because they're still recovering from the shock of the ISIS campaign and the counter-ISIS campaign. Um, but I, I don't think that those feelings of resentment have gone away. The other factor I think we have to think about is that ISIS in Syria is in operating in a very different strategic environment now than it has in the past. Most parties in Syria up until really 2017 were treating uh, united in the fact they were relatively opposed to ISIS. Russia and the United States were uncomfortable with each other's positions. The Assad regime was not comfortable with what the SDF was doing. Turkey didn't like any of it. They're all opposed to ISIS and at least were fighting it or at least weren't objecting to other people fighting it. Now that ISIS is gone, those other actors have a lot more relative concern with each other's and each other's motions, and it is a not a two-dimensional battlefield; it's a three-dimensional battlefield and political battlefield, not just in terms of actual military compact, and and, and that gives space for ISIS or what is currently ISIS that may evolve into other entities and identities, to begin playing off those different elements in different ways, and I think we can expect to see them take advantage of that to the extent they are permitted to. And the fact that we've kind of lost that focus on a counter ISIS mission in Syria, I suspect, um, may enable those opportunities.
0: Um, so the president announced this with uh, his usual uh, grace and uh, decorum. Uh, Dan, does that matter?
1: So much of terrorism and its danger is psychological. And so the number of Americans who have been killed by jihadist terrorism on U.S. soil since 9-11 is much smaller than certainly I feared um, right after 9-11. It's um, just over 100 people. And so the impact of terrorism is not just in the actual um, death of innocent people, but it's the fear it creates among citizens. It's the potential divisions it creates. And one thing that President Bush did well and one thing President Obama did well is after there were attacks, they tried to bring people together. And this was far from perfect, but they recognized that this was a threat to our entire country and at the same time, that any response was going to be an American response and would be shared by people of different political persuasions. And Trump's response was was a gloating response. It was uh, he in his Q and A session following his remarks, he immediately began praising himself and uh, bringing in a range of political issues. And it was the sort of thing that you know alienates many people. And as a result, I think the president had a real opportunity to unify Americans for a day at least, and unfortunately, uh, he passed it by.
0: What do you think, Scott? Is there, uh, I mean, is it merely a missed opportunity, or is there? I mean, I I I can't quite put my finger on, uh, other than that, I found a lot of the specific sentences that he uttered really jarring and and upsetting. I, I can't really put my finger on kind of what was wrong with it other than that it's not the way a president is supposed to sound. Uh, we'll get to the specific issue of, of, uh, of claiming the oil later. Um, but uh, what is, to your mind, the significance of the president announcing it in the fashion that he did?
2: You know, to the extent I think that there is one thing that helped unite the rapid global opposition to the Islamic State and proactive opposition, actually participation in a coalition to combat them, is the Horrendous savagery that they visited on uh, civilians, on people of different sectarian identities, on opposing soldiers. Um, You know the mass graves, the mass executions, the throwing homosexual uh, and LGBT Iraqis from the tops of towers uh, in Mosul. These horrendous, horrendous acts of a type of violence that I think a lot of people had thought was from a chapter of human history we we closed the book on, or at least mostly closed the book on. Um, That's the sort of rhetoric of violence that President Trump is evoking, and a more somewhat more subdued manner. But when you say he died like a dog, he is using violence and the rhetoric of violence to exercise power over this person in a symbolic way, to say they are weak, they are defeated, we are stronger than them, we can dominate them, we can control them. And that's, you know, the play with that sort of ideas and with that sort of language is playing into that same book. It's legitimizing it. It's playing on the battlefield that they've carved out for themselves and that they're going willing to go to limits that I pray the United States would never go to. And I think stepping in that direction was itself a very dangerous move. You know, when President Obama did the Osama bin Laden raid, there was you know, some aspects of story got out, and there were some people who kind of played up some of these more um, violent aspects of it. But the official rhetoric, at least from the president, was very consciously, as others have described, trying not to spike the football, not to make this a celebratory act, to treat it with solemnity, and to treat it with the seriousness it deserves. And there was none of that here. And I worry what that does for the perceptions of legitimacy and um, uh, kind of, you know, moral superiority uh, that that we has helped us build alliances, um, both against ISIS and in other contexts as well.
0: So all of this uh, takes place at a weird moment in uh, U.S. interaction with uh, Syria and sort of northern Syria in particular. Um, Dan, how should we understand this set of events? against the backdrop of the U.S. uh, quasi-withdrawal or uh, permissive attitude toward what the Turks are doing with respect to the Kurdish regions?
1: So, part of the, I will say, frustration I have with Trump's foreign policy is embodied in how he handled the Kurds in this situation. Uh, So... Simply allowing the Turks to go in with a very bloody military campaign, right there, that is something that should have given any administration some pause. Uh, how Trump made the decision, where it seemed to be a kind of spur of the moment um, uh, effort after um, discussing with, after a phone conversation with President Erdogan, um, again, the lack of deliberation, uh, letting allies know effectively by tweet, letting the U.S. military know by tweet. So there's a whole a series of kind of disastrous implementation decisions that have embodied his foreign policy in general, but focusing very narrowly on counterterrorism, uh, it's even more painful. And the Baghdadi raid really illustrates this, where the president, one thing I did like about his speech was that he thanked allies. Right now, he of course felt compelled to single out Russia, but if you you know look at what he said, it's clear that the uh, the Syrian Kurds played a significant role. And there have been a lot of uh, leaks uh, in the aftermath saying they played a truly massive role. Uh, the Iraqi government played a significant role. And so one of probably the biggest counterterrorism success of Trump's presidency depended very heavily on allies. It depended very heavily on having U.S. troops deployed overseas. Um, all these things that he is against are can be disastrous if we lose these capabilities. And I really want to preserve this U.S. involvement around the world, not just because I think it's good for the world, but because I think it's good for the United States. And I worry that the president's going to take the Baghdadi killing as final proof that we actually don't need to be involved overseas when another reading of what happened shows the importance of allies and the importance of regional engagement. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
0: Lawfare 20. Scott, do you think there's any evidence that the president has seen this situation as indication that, you know, perhaps we actually need these allies that we're busy denigrating? Or, or do you share Dan's concern that he'll take it as evidence that, uh, th- that there, there is no
2: value to the allies we are abandoning? Uh, I'm. I think I shared Dan's concern more than anything. You know, I don't think we have know yet. I think we have to see where this goes. Uh, We saw the Trump administration in just the days leading up to this raid do a pretty dramatic reversal in its Syria policy again for the third time, um, where now instead of a full withdrawal, they're saying we're going to deploy about 500 troops to both kind of guard oil fields around ez Zor, this area in SDF control that, um, you know, is intended to be according to the administration, both to keep them out of the hands of ISIS and to help give the SDF kind of a resource base and territorial base, and then also to defend um, al tanf military base on the border with Jordan that has to do with the you know, deterring Iranian routes. And then the third element of that is this idea that we're going to be able to just hop across the border and keep hitting ISIS um, remotely through this kind of over-the-horizon military operations out of Iraq, um, maybe out of other mil- uh, bases in the region but come in and do these sorts of targeted strikes. And I'm not clear to me that the administration appreciate the extent to which those strikes, even if executed by military forces outside of the country, really reply, rely upon intelligence networks and groundwork for which you need ground allies, uh, and which for which you need people on the ground you can rely on, and Americans to liaise with them, guide them, and help structure their activities. And that's what we lose when these troops pull out of Syria, or at least pull out of the parts of Syria where we want to be able to target these groups. Um, you know, now the SDF is going to be a lot more operationally constrained anywhere north in the uh, toward the border. Um, you know, their ability to gather intelligence and get information um, is compromised, and their willingness to do it is probably seriously compromised. Because if I were the SDF, I would see the writing on the wall and say that the United States is not a reliable ally. And while we're happy to have their support for the moment while it lasts... I would be starting to make contingencies, and they're only real, realistic contingencies with Russia and the Assad regime. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it is it is until we see some clear signs that the president uh, really understands the degree to which these sorts of actions rely upon these partners, I'm not sure he's learned that lesson. I don't think we've seen those signs yet.
0: Dan, what do you uh, see as if, if you're the Kurds now and you've seen this pretty disastrous, uh, from their point of view anyway, uh, U.S. withdrawal combined with then a kind of reversal of it, uh, combined with then a, this operation. What is your takeaway? Is the, is the takeaway that the U.S. sucks, but boy, they're better than anything else and you kind of got to work with them anyway? Or is the uh, takeaway that the U.S. sucks, they're unreliable, and you got to make other contingency
1: arrangements? Or both? Um, I would say certainly both, but with an emphasis on other contingency arrangements. Uh, The Kurds always had relations with the Assad regime in Syria. They never abandoned that when they were working with the United States. But at the same time, they've really uh, tried to increase their uh, partnership with both the Syrians and the Russians. Um, and some of the territory that they controlled is now effectively controlled uh, by the Syrian government. And the Kurds need that because they need defense against the Turkish incursion. Uh, they would definitely prefer to work with the United States. The U.S. will give them more autonomy. The U.S. doesn't want their land. Um, the U.S. in general is very effective at you know at fighting and doing what it does. But I, the Kurds, I'm sure, were always Um, a little nervous that the United States would continue its tradition as it has done in Iraq and other areas of working with the Kurds and then not supporting them at different historical periods. But this particular abandonment was so sudden and was um, in a way so disastrous for them that um, they're going to have to uh, find other partners, even if they try to maintain some relationship with Washington.
0: All right, let's talk about oil. Um, The president was not very clear about many things yesterday, except that Baghdadi died like a dog and whimpered and all that jazz. He was fulsome in his praise of an actual dog. um, And he was really clear that he wants the oil. Um, As one of you suggested earlier there has been something of a redeployment around certain oil fields for purposes of Kurdish access to the oil revenues from those oil fields. But that is not the way the president talks about it, which is as though we are going to take these oil fields and we're getting the oil. Um, so, Scott, first of all, I just for listeners who do not have a sense of the international law of capturing oil fields—is it lawful for the United States to take Iraq's oil and its oil fields by using military force?
2: Uh, it is definitely not. Uh, it's probably illegal under both domestic and international law. Uh, international law—you know—the fundamental tenet of international law is not claiming territory uh, by military kind of conquest. And what when, about the
0: stuff under the territory? Right? <laughs> that also counts as
2: part of it. And it's a lot of stuff over the territory at times, too. And even if you were to occupy it for reasons of military necessity, you're not supposed to start exploiting the resources for your own gain. Although it's not clear that's really what Trump's talking about here. Um, under domestic law, you know, we are really only there under either a counter-ISIS mission or an idea of Article II authorities, the president's inherent constitutional authority, uh, the latter, which has never been tied to this idea that somehow we're going to start claiming resources. Um, It it seems that the president, this is the president's weird shorthand for saying we want to keep these in control of our allies. We want to kind of keep them dominated. And it is notable that one of the major fields is developed by ConocoPhillips, an American company, which may play into this sort of idea that it's ours.
0: Yeah, so I I just want to pause on that because when I was listening to him yesterday, it was not at all clear to me me that it was shorthand for keeping control. He, he always says, I always say, take the oil, secu- you know, get the oil. Um, are you confident that he's not saying that the U.S. should exploit these oil reserves?
2: I I, not, I guess I'm not 100% confident. I mean, the President Trump has had this weird line that comes up over and over again in the Middle East. He said it about Iraq uh, in the campaign, and he said it early in the administration, and it's kind of come back occasionally, which feeds into, by the way, a horrible— Line of uh, conspiracy theories and anti-American sediment in Iraq and placed directly into the hands of the people who spread those uh, rumors that say that yeah that's the only reason we ever entered Iraq in the first place is to try and get their oil. Um, you know the only reason I say that is because th- there's just no practical way to actually go about exploiting this oil uh, and claiming you know ownership rights over it. Uh, it's not something that uh, you know I think that we would have uh, much luck even trying to export on the international market or getting companies to sign on to because the ownership rights would be so contested. Uh, We've seen a dispute like this play out between the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq and the central government in Iraq a few years ago. And uh, the central government in Iraq was able to, through a series of legal actions, really cut off the KRG's ability to uh, you know, exploit the soil. I think the Assad regime or maybe the SCF, or I don't know who would do it, would have a little harder time against the United States. But uh, you know, that's it just is so beyond the realm of reality to think we're somehow going to land Army Corps of Engineers and start building oil derricks in central Syria surrounded by, um, you know, Russian military troops and with our Kurdish allies. It just doesn't seem realistic. Now, it is possible maybe that they'd say, well, it's with our clients, the SDF. Um, they're u- using American companies, at least in this one case of this one field. I don't know about the other uh, major field. Um and, uh, you know, maybe that feeds into this weird shorthand the president's using. But I you know, I will grant you it's a generous reading of what the president has said at, at the least. Dan, um, how do you
0: understand it? I mean, I you know, the Bush, the, the poor Bush administration for years had to deal with the slogan, no blood for oil. Trump seems to be out there saying he's like he's going to print a bumper sticker, blood for oil. Um how how do you understand what the president has said about these oil fields?
1: Uh, so I put this in the category of the moat with alligators that the president wanted on the U.S.-Mexico border, where I assumed, of course, that was a joke the first time I heard it, and that it seemed to be something he really pressed officials on, that he wanted these kind of crazy um, ideas to be implemented. And The Washington Post quoted A defense official is saying that um, this is like feeding a baby its medicine in yogurt or applesauce. And the the implication seemed to be or actually uh, quite clearly was that this was a decision uh, to keep some military presence in Syria that the uh, Pentagon uh, really wanted. And they phrased it in a way that would appeal to Trump's view of the world, even if it was nonsensical. Pause there for a second.
0: So I'm the Joint Chiefs and you're Trump. And I come to you and say, let's keep 500 uh, special forces troops uh, in northern Syria, but only to protect the
1: oil fields. Is that. Exactly. And you say, Mr. President, you've said in the past we should take the oil. This will help us make sure that no one else is going to take the oil you play to his past rhetoric you play to his past bad ideas in order to do what you were hoping to do anyway i actually really don't like it in civil military terms right i feel that it's misleading the commander in chief the problem is we have a kind of deranged and um somewhat you know foolish commander in chief so it puts military officials in a very bad spot
0: and but, but but you do not assume that those troops are in any way there to Uh, uh, to exploit the oil reserves, but rather to, uh, but rather to, they're they're deployed in the region of those reserves to do what they're going to do, uh, i.e. be eyes and ears and special forces for this kind of raid, but uh, uh, deployed in the region uh, of these, uh, of these oil fields.
1: Um, Yes, I I think that their mission in practice will have nothing to do with exploiting the oil, bringing it to market. Um, All the reasons that Scott outlined, I think, are, you know, are individually are going to prevent this and collectively make it impossible.
0: All right. I will resist the temptation to go off on a rift, a riff about the commander in chief while announcing the death of a terrorist leader abroad, uh, talking about a delusional mission uh, of oil secure recovery by forces that are in fact there for another reason, having, him having been manipulated into, into thinking about it that way. Um, I'll just leave that there. So Scott there's one other region that US troops are remaining in. Uh tell us about that and and why
2: why there will be a continued presence there as well. Yeah, that is that is the uh, a TAMF, uh kind of military base. It's this facility that's on the border of uh, Jordan and Syria near the intersection of the border with Iraq. Uh, and the United States has been there for several years. At one point it was kind of the headquarters of a train and equip operation with a uh, militia group that's not separate from the SDF uh, if I recall correctly an Arab militia group there um, that they were training and equipping and and to some extent still are and has some sort of nominal presence there but that we've maintained this military presence there even though ISIS has left the region a long time ago. Uh, Instead at this point it is essentially a military base the United States maintains. They maintain about a 50, 55 kilometer de-escalation zone, as they call it, around it, which means that they essentially blow up any Assad regime forces that come through that de-escalation zone. Um, that zone has two effects. One, it encompasses a Rukban refugee camp, which is a major refugee camp, um, where at one point, I think in the north of forty or fifty thousand um, refugees were located. Um, it has been under a kind of siege of supplies by the Russian uh, government and by the Assad regime. Um, that's not letting it through. The Jordanian government is also very nervous about the camp and not excited about uh, supplying through it. It through that uh, location um, uh, it, that they've been trying to provide humanitarian kind of protection to, um, but that nonetheless at this point has started going through this kind of UN-facilitated resettlement plan that's slowly dwindling the population. But the more important one strategically it seems to the United States, at least in addition to that maybe humanitarian justification, is that this de-escalation zone covers the major... uh, road um, between Iraq and uh, Western Syria and eventually Lebanon, which would be create this kind of supply route for the Iranian government by which they could get materiel and theory from Iran to Iraq, both of which, you know, it has strong networks in through Syria. To its agents with the Assad regime in western Syria, and then on to Hezbollah, its kind of agents in Lebanon, uh, create this kind of Iranian trade route. Um, and, and Ambassador Jeffrey, who's kind of the who's the administration's uh, Syria point person, who's been pretty frank to say, like, yeah, this is the reason why we really want to keep this location here, so we can cut off the supply line. Um, there hasn't really been much of an effort to tie this presence there for a couple of years now to ISIS, because it's not even plausible. Um, so this is not an AUMF 2001 mission uh, that's kind of a counterterrorism mission. Instead, it appears to be an Article II mission. The president's doing this claimedly under his own constitutional authority. Uh, John Bolton at one point said as much in kind of a flippant remark, although I, we haven't seen any more official statement than that on it. Um, but it is this lingering uh, military presence that's that's far removed in a different part of the country than the Derizor oil fields, which are um, uh, up the Euphrates River and kind of more into the country. Um, so it is another significant part of this mission that's much more oriented towards countering Iran um, than really any other purpose in the region.
0: All right, finally, and this is the part that I know a lot of listeners are, have been waiting for, let's talk about the dog. Uh, uh, Dan, uh, at, at least two dogs have played a significant role in this story, uh, Uh, Is this just the kind of 30 to 50 feral hogs of the Baghdadi raid, or is there actually something important here?
1: Um, I think it's definitely the feral hogs, but I will say it's pretty clear that the president has very strong feelings towards dogs. Um, Baghdadi, he has dying like a dog. Um, He's praising the beautiful and talented dog that was injured on the raid. And, you know, it is, of course, Um, known, I think, to many Americans who follow these things, that uh, canines play a very important role um, assisting um, special operations forces um, in these raids. So it's not a surprise that there were dogs on this mission. Uh, But the fact that the president himself felt compelled to single out the dog is quite interesting to me. Um, And the press attention that the possible identity of the dog might be getting, whether the dog's photograph will be released. um, I think this shows that this may be one of the legacies of this raid in the popular imagination um, is this picture of the dog and um, kind of juxtaposed with the image of Baghdadi that the president is trying to push.
0: And, you know, uh, for listeners who don't know this, in this region of the uh, Arab Middle East, dogs are not uh, a really admired animal the way they are here. Is, Is that fair, Dan?
1: Oh, absolutely. That uh, dog is seen as unclean, and so uh, dying like a dog is kind of a double um, insult. There's a standard insult one would expect uh, to people um, in the West, but it's especially um, insulting in uh, in an Arab context.
0: And so, Scott, you've you've spent a lot of time in Iraq. I, I don't know how much time you've spent in Syria, but what? when when we do a raid like this, and the rhetoric about it afterwards is all about dogs. and there's a picture, a celebratory picture of a dog and Baghdadi is said to die like a dog. Uh, what's the and and the terrorists who are running around like puppies, I think the president said, what's the? I mean, that has cultural resonance, as Dan puts it on on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. But I suspect it has very different cultural resonance in the communities in which uh, these raids took place. What is it like? How do people
2: react to it when we when we talk about it that way? You know, as I mentioned before, the president's rhetoric was an effort just to utilize and gloat over the power he's exercising over Baghdadi. And that's not a positive message at all, particularly for people in a part of the world that are very sensitive about American domination about Western colonialism a lot about a lot of these narratives that feed into their worldview of politics and inevitably inflect on how they view uh, the United States to add on top of that this idea about yeah using this dog rhetoric it makes no sense in American connotations like most people have very positive views of dogs it's not a phrase you really hear except in old mobster movies and old West movies um, and I'm, I kind of suspect that's where the president got this more than any deliberate effort to um, you know try and provoke um you know, Arab audience or Middle Eastern audiences. Um, but it does have that sort of impression where if you're already skeptical of the United States interests, you already view them as a, an entity that's intent on repressing, um, you know, foreign peoples and then all of a sudden they're using this rhetoric that has certain cultural connotations. I think um, you know Mosul I, who's a, a Twitter and blogger who's kind of uh, was notorious for posting photos of Mosul under um, the Islamic State and now is, provides really wonderful insight into some things that are happening on the ground there, I, I think made this point on Twitter um, as well as saying like, this does have certain ramifications that are going to, if anything, echo with this idea of this insult and this degradation that just feeds into the narrative of discontent and resentment that fuels ISIS in the first place. And so it is inevitably a a self-defeating sort of step to play into that rhetoric as opposed to try and find some way to the extent possible to, if not rise above it, at least avoid adding to it. We're going to leave it there. Scott Anderson,
0: Dan Byman, thanks for joining us. And this has been a special edition of the Lawfare podcast, which is, as all editions of the Lawfare podcast are, produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Uh, You can get Lawfare swag, and as well you should, at thelawfarestore.com. You should tweet the Lawfare podcast, share the Lawfare podcast on Facebook. And of course, Use Pinterest to share the Lawfare Podcast with everybody. I don't know, do you follow people on Pinterest? Uh, uh, no, you should uh, rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever podcast distribution service you use. Our music, when we have music, which we don't on special editions of the Lawfare Podcast, is performed by Sophia Yan. The Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Only today it is produced and edited by Michaela Fogel, who is our audio engineer. And of course, thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.